Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to this special farewell edition of Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll say goodbye to 2SER with a retrospective told in theme music. Observe some quantum bits and turn our glass eye towards the father of wearable computing. But first up, Steve Mann first invented wearable computers 35 years ago, and he's been wearing them ever since. He was the first man to stream video from his glasses wirelessly onto the web in 1994, before Wi-Fi was invented. He's Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Toronto, with a PhD from the MIT Media Lab. Steve Mann went on to design and build all sorts of wearable computer systems, such as wearable musical instruments, audio-based computers, and seeing aids for the blind. His electronic glasses are called the Glass Eye, or Glass for short. They're more than 20 years ahead of the functionality of Google's Glass, which is essentially just a voice-operated wearable smartphone, at this stage miniaturising and replicating what Mann was using in 1994. Steve Mann also calls his invention Glass after his first computer-enhanced vision project with welding. Welders wear a darkened glass face mask to let them see their work without being blinded. It's so dark that they can't see very much other than the blindingly bright electric arc. They call this face mask a glass. In 1978, Mann put a digital camera on the front of a helmet and connected it to a computer and then to a video screen on the inside of the glass. The camera compensated for the bright welding arc by taking an underexposed picture, a normal picture, an overexposed picture and combining them with software to make a clear picture so welders could see their hands and the bench as well as the tip of the electrode in the arc. Steve Mann had invented the high dynamic range algorithm used by photographic software today. These welder's helmets apply the technique at a fast video rate and let the wearer view the stereo output in real time. In 1981, Mann designed and built a backpack-based multimedia wearable computer system with a head-mounted display visible to one eye. The antenna, camera and microphone were in a helmet, because of their large size. The system allowed for the input and display of text, graphics, video, and audio. Mann was even able to write new apps for the computer while walking around wearing it. In the late 1980s, Mann's wireless networks could transfer data at a then blazing 56 kilobytes per second. From 1994 until 1996, he started streaming video live from his ordinary looking glasses to the web. 24 hours a day, except for bathing, because the system wasn't waterproof. People watching on his website could scribble messages that would be overlaid onto his vision. The webcam glasses experiment raised some new issues in the capture, sharing and archiving of a person's entire life from their own perspective. He called this cyborg logging, or glogging, before anyone blogged. This kind of capture of everyday life is now called life logging. In 1998, he built a neck-worn pendant with a wireless internet-connected camera and a laser projector. The device projected information onto the world around him without the need for a screen. 
While he was in the supermarket, his wife at home sent messages over the internet to his projector. She scribbled notes on a laser pointer at a screen in front of her, which he could see projected in front of him. He used this as a teaching example at the University of Toronto, where students could buy the parts to make all of the device except the computer for just $75. Later, in 1998, Steve Mann made a wristwatch computer running Linux. The watch was able to make internet video phone calls a whole five years before Skype was invented. He demonstrated the watch at a conference in 2000, and his internet video phone watch appeared on the July 2000 cover of Linux Journal. The watch had a secret function which hid the video conferencing window by turning off the transparency of the clock, so that the watch function filled the screen. The system streamed live video at 7 frames a second on a 640 by 480 screen in 24-bit colour. Can the Apple Watch do that? As well as adding to or augmenting reality by painting words and images on top of your everyday view of the world, Steve Mann has also invented the concept of diminished reality, where distracting and unwanted parts of your view can be eliminated by the computer mediating your vision. So you can create a kill file of cigarette ads you don't want to see if you're not a smoker, and those ads in your environment will be blank. An ideal space for messages from your computer to be shown without disrupting what you want to see. Man calls the computer-manipulated addition, deletion, and enhancement of vision mediated reality. His ITAP electric eyeglasses can download a prescription and adjust your vision accordingly. They can change how you see the world depending on what you're looking at. So you can zoom in on distant things or focus in on things close up. They can add infrared vision or make text easier to read. The iTap doesn't have a video screen in the corner of a spectacle frame like the Google Glass. Instead, it projects the light to paint an image directly onto your retina. Your eye is the screen, and your eye looks like it's made of glass. In 2004, man was knocked down by a car and injured. The memory buffer in his iTap was damaged, so it saved images of the car and its license plate instead of overwriting them. The images led to the arrest of the hit-and-run driver. In 2012, he was attacked by staff in a McDonald's restaurant in Paris. Once again, the iTap was damaged, and the buffer accidentally saved the images of his attackers, complete with their name badges. McDonald's have refused to release the CCTV footage of the event, and refused to answer his letters. Mann has posted the photos with the faces and names blurred out. On his blog, at iTap, .blogspot.com. Man notes that the same shops that ban you from using a camera also display quick codes for you to scan with your camera to enter competitions or get more information. Steve Mann sees wearable computing as the next platform after smartphones. There will be Google Glass, Apple Glass, Olympus Glass, Japanese Telepathy Glass, Glass Platform Wars. Based on his many years of wearing his own mediated computers, Steve Mann has a warning for Google about the design of Google Glass when used as a viewfinder for video. The camera is well to the right side of the wearer's eye, but the display is on top of the user's eye. This means that when you use it as a viewfinder for shooting video, your brain will have to adapt to it being in the wrong position. Mann's experience is that your brain will adapt, but then give you unpleasant side effects for a longer time after you've removed the glass. To avoid this, man uses a double-sided mirror to bounce the light that would have hit your eye into a camera and the light from the projector into your eye. That way, you see what your eye would naturally see and your brain doesn't have to adapt. 
He also warns that Google's glass design with a video screen that appears at a fixed distance from one eye is ignoring his experience and that of virtual reality pioneers. Using lenses in this way forces one eye to remain focused at some set distance while the focus of the other eye shifts according to whatever the wearer is looking at, near or far. Doing this leads to severe eye strain. Instead, man has his display served up to your eye through a pinhole instead of through a lens. This way, the image is in focus no matter where you focus your eye and you can use your eyes naturally without strain. Always ahead of the curve, Man's newest project is a brain interface that aims not only to translate your thoughts to control devices, but to pipe external sensors into your mind. The Mind Mesh Project. The aim of the Mind Mesh Project is to let the blind see, and people with visual memory impairment to remember and recall visual subject matter. The Mind Mesh is a permanently attached skull cap with a combination of implantable and surface electrodes, coordinated by a mesh-based computing architecture in which individual processes are each responsible for eight electrodes. The mind mesh is evolving towards an apparatus that allow people to plug in various sensory devices into it as if they were plugging them into their own brain. So a blind person will be able to plug in a camera or an Alzheimer's patient will be able to gain a form of photographic memory indexed for instant and total recall. As we replace more of our mind with an external memory, these memories become part of us. The product sold now is the Muse, a headband that reads your brainwaves with just four sensors to control games, reduce stress, improve memory and concentration, and eventually to control devices directly with your mind. You can think at your phone! Well, not yet. The Muse only detects mental states, such as calmness or attention, so the first application will be biofeedback to help you either become more relaxed or more focused at will. This is only a few steps away from some of the other brainwave reading headbands on the market. The Interaxon company that makes Man's Muse had been building art installations around the technology. In 2009, they had a glowing chair with the headband and a screen showing your alpha waves as you relaxed. Once the alpha waves raised to a certain level, the chair would start to levitate and the user could control lights and sounds. As the father of wearable computing keeps on inventing, he's also got his eye on the big picture. Steve Mann is a member of the advisory board of the Lifeboat Foundation, which seeks to encourage scientific advancement while seeking to protect humanity from existential risks. And by existential risks, they mean risks to the existence of humanity, whether from asteroids or from technology running amok. The man who's been transcending his humanity for 35 years with wearable computers, mediated reality, water-based musical instruments and brain interfaces wants to make sure that we all survive to enjoy the future he's already living in. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and for the very last time into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3 and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Here's Ed Pollitt, reporting on how a team of Australian engineers have made a demonstration that promises to lead to dramatic improvements in quantum computing. In a world-first result, a team of Australian engineers at the University of New South Wales has demonstrated a quantum bit based on the nucleus of a single atom in silicon, which promises dramatic improvements for data processing in ultra-powerful quantum computers of the future. A quantum bit, or qubit, 
is the term given to a unit of information in the world of quantum computers, much like the zeros and ones used in today's computers. However, unlike so-called classical bits, which are either one or zero, on or off, a qubit can be both on and off at the same time. This is a state known in quantum mechanics as superposition. The upshot of using qubits in place of regular bits is that quantum computers will eventually give rise to exponential increases in computing speed. Think for a moment about what that implies. Ever since the production of the first transistor-based computer, the increase over time of computing power has been ruled by Moore's law, which is the observation that the number of transistors, and therefore computing power, doubles approximately every two years. Quantum computing, when it arrives, will offer enormous advantages for searching expansive databases, cracking modern encryption, and modelling atomic-scale systems such as biological molecules and drugs. The team from the University of New South Wales has brought this an important step closer. What they actually did was to manipulate the magnetic spin of the nucleus of an atom. According to Associate Professor Andrea Morello from the School of Electrical Engineering and Telecommunications at the University of New South Wales, they adapted magnetic resonance technology, commonly known for its application in chemical analysis and MRI scans, to control and read out the nuclear spin of a single atom in real time. The nucleus is an extremely weak magnet, which can point along two natural directions, either up or down, these being equivalent to the classical on or off state of binary code that you may be familiar with. In their experiment, the researchers controlled this direction of the nucleus, in effect, writing a value onto its spin and then reading the value out, turning the nucleus into a functioning qubit. We achieved a readout fidelity of 99.8%, says Sienta Professor Andrew Zurek, which sets a new benchmark for qubit accuracy in solid-state devices. Professor Andrew Zurek is also a director of the Australian National Fabrication Facility at UNSW, where the devices were made. This accuracy rivals what many consider to be today's best quantum bit, which is a single atom in an electromagnetic trap inside a vacuum chamber. The development of this ion trap technology was awarded the 2012 Nobel Prize in Physics. The team's new qubit, however, does not operate in a vacuum chamber. It's in a silicon chip that can be wired up and operated electrically like normal integrated circuits. Silicon is the dominant material in the microelectronics industry, which means their qubit is more compatible with existing industry technology and is more easily scalable. This means it's more challenging to measure, but it's almost completely immune to disturbances from the outside world, which makes it an exceptional quantum bit, says lead author and PhD engineering student Jared Pla. Our nuclear spin qubit can store information for longer times and with greater accuracy. This will greatly enhance our ability to carry out complex quantum calculations once we put many of these qubits together. I can't wait to see the future of quantum computing. And my thanks to Miles Goff of the University of New South Wales. Thank you, Ed. The Diffusion Science radio show has been axed from 2SER to make room for new shows by new volunteers. It's the end of an era.
Since 1995, the weekly Diffusion Science radio show has been providing free science communication and science communication training at community radio station 2SER. 2SER is operated jointly by the University of Technology Sydney and Macquarie University. I've produced Diffusion for 15 years. In 2011, astronomer Matt Dawson named a planetoid Victoria Bond. The minor planet ephemeris service carries this entry. Victoria Bond is the name of the popular Australian science show presenter of Diffusion Science Radio. Her catchphrase, planetoid, I love that word, and accurate astronomy coverage have endeared her to listeners worldwide. Later in 2011, Diffusion won the 2SER Best Talk Show Award, so I felt we might have been doing the right thing. Then in 2012, Diffusion was granted $10,000 for content development from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Online, we have 700 weekly subscribers to our podcast, with 10,000 downloads from our archives at www.diffusionradio.com every month. Diffusion is syndicated on the community radio network around Australia to 14 stations. On the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station in the USA, and on astronomy.fm in the UK. Diffusion has been an institution where volunteers were trained by fellow volunteers to do all the jobs of producing a radio show, from operating the panel, conducting interviews, presenting, script writing, editing, and producing. More than 50 science communicators have contributed to Diffusion in the last 15 years that I've been part of the team. When I joined, we had a dozen members. We were called Discovery, and we actually broadcast live. In the more than 10 years captured by the podcasts on www.diffusionradio.com, the team have broadcast over 180 interviews with scientists and engineers, along with even more well-researched reports, panel discussions, book reviews, science songs, trivia games, and radio plays to communicate science to the public. We're investigating funding for professional home and field recording equipment to continue podcasting. Everyone is invited to the Bar Broadway Hotel opposite UTS for farewell drinks from 8.30 on Monday night. Look for the unemployed guy in the black fedora. Meanwhile, here's a history of diffusion as told in theme music, from our original theme through to the summer series and our legally mandated change of name. Hi, this is Douglas Adams. I'm the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I'm here to urge you to listen to the National Science Programme on Discovery. This is Discovery, 2SER's national science show where science, arts and culture meet to educate, inform and entertain. No one would have believed in the last year of the 20th century that scientific affairs were being watched from the timeless world of radio. No one could have dreamed that they were being scrutinised as someone with a microscope studies creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. Few listeners even considered the possibility of a summer science radio series and yet, across the Sydney metropolitan area, 
minds were kept stimulated and regarded this earth with wondrous eyes. And slowly, but surely, they tuned their radios to axiomatic. world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Welcome. Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome to Discovery. 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 Welcome to Discovery. Discovery. <gasps> Discovery. Discovery. Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of the user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery. Uh, yeah. Hello. The following program is a special Christmas edition of a certain long-running science show on Australian community radio. But since this recording was made, we've received a cease and desist order from an international cable television network with the same name as our humble community radio science show. Our show still exists, we're just not allowed to use the old name. So, as a public service, in the program that follows, every reference to our name has been played backwards to avoid confusion. The show will return in 2006, bringing you the best bits from the world of science each week, but we'll be broadcasting under a new banner. So sit back and enjoy this, the Christmas special of the science show we used to call... Hello and welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome. Eurovaxit. 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 Sounds like a lot of fun. We're in space. This may all be happening right now. Now to the speeded up brain of the user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the Erexit Christmas special. We're coming to you... It's a scientific fact. A scientific fact. It has to be correct. It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific fact. It's a scientific fact. Hello and welcome. You are now listening to Undiscovered, the show formerly known as Discovery. Yes, 
Yes, it is true. We do live on Science Alone. You are listening to the unnamed science show on 2SER here in Sydney and around Australia thanks to the Community Broadcasting Network. We used to have a name, but we got told not to use it anymore. So we're on the search for a new one. Hello and welcome to the finest half hour of science radio in the fashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy. Or I've insert your name here. Yes, welcome to The Science Show with No Name, the science show that used to be called Something to Do with Discos, I'm not entirely sure. We're in the search for a new name here at the uh, the Community Broadcasting Networks and 2SER's Science Show. So if you've got any ideas, send them our way. Welcome to The Science Show with No Lawyer. Yes, indeed, and welcome to The Science Show on this station and heard around the country, thanks to the Community Broadcasting Network. It's a science show without a name. We're one more week without a proper name for this show, but don't worry, we'll be back bigger and better with an even bigger, better name this time next week. Yes, that's right, it's finally here. We've finally found a name for our show that hopefully won't land us in court. We're now called Diffusion, and the other good news is we don't have to throw away our monogrammed bathrobes either. I don't think we don't mean that. And that's all from us from 2SER on Diffusion. Bye-bye 2SER. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. And we hope you'll come and check out our continuing podcast. If you'd like to continue hearing the show, then you'll need to subscribe to the podcast on www.diffusionradio.com because there aren't any Sydney radio stations broadcasting Diffusion. 2SCR will be broadcasting the fourth estate in this time slot next Monday. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. You can send your opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send us an email so we know you're listening and would like to hear more episodes. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program this week was Ed Pollitt. I produced Diffusion for the last time in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network where you will still be able to hear us. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice through the podcast for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. This was a triumph. I'm making a note here. Huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Aperture Science. We do what we must, because we can. For the good of all of us, except the ones who are dead. But there's no sense crying over every mistake. You just keep on trying till you run out of cake. And the science gets done, and you make a neat gun for the people who are still alive. Even angry I'm being 
to stay inside Maybe you'll find someone else to help 